Welcome to Porter Wright's Antitrust Law Source. Good morning from sunny Columbus. This is Jay Levine, your host of Antitrust Law Source, and I'm here again with Ryan Graham. How you doing, Ryan? I'm doing well, Jay. Thanks. Um, we're here to kind of give an update about uh, consumer data breach litigation. Um, there's been, um, I don't know about some developments, but there's been some movement and different arguments been applied. So we thought we'd uh, bring that to your attention. But before we do, let's kind of review where we were up until, you know, a couple of months ago. So, you know, there's this Supreme Court case clapper that seems to get in the way of all the plaintiff's ability to recover. So can you just... Briefly tell us, what is Clapper? Clapper was actually a national security case. It was a case where Amnesty International, the organization, was challenging some of the warrantless wiretaps that were being undertaken around the time of the Bush administration. And what Clapper, or what the plaintiffs in Clapper attempted to do was they attempted to challenge these wiretaps on the basis that they, well, their theory was that their foreign correspondents or these foreign news organizations would no longer be able to communicate with them or they would lose these correspondents out of fear that their their communications would be eavesdropped upon by the US government. And so what the Supreme Court held in Clapper was that that speculative fear of harm was not sufficient to grant standing for the plaintiffs. And, and standing essentially is a court looking at you and saying, what are you doing here? Um, and what they said is that that fear of harm does not meet the Article Three requirement in the Constitution that there is um, that there's injury in fact, right. essentially. Okay. So, I mean, any, any plaintiff who comes to court, as you said, what are you doing here? What are you seeking? What redress is there? There's got to be either money damages, injunction, but there's got to be some relief and you've got to suffer some harm to get that relief. And if you haven't suffered a harm, then you have no business being in court, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, it's a practical policy in the sense that if anyone could come into court and say, well, he harmed me because I feel bad or feel, you know, I feel like this was wrong, then obviously that's simply too speculative. You need to be able to point to something that the court can, as you said, redress, that the court can do something about. So, and in Clapper, the the harm was that Amnesty International felt that we would lose the contact with all of these reporters who no longer felt comfortable, and that's a harm because then their agency is essentially being put out of business, so to speak. They, they can't do, they can't conduct their mission because they can't get these communications. Is that... That's, that's more or less correct, yes. Or that there would be some chilling effect or that you know they would not be able to conduct their work. But as stated by the Supreme Court, all of these theories were pretty speculative. I mean, right. it's, a, it's a long decision, so I don't want to oversimplify what Amnesty was arguing. But that being said, yeah, I mean, it, it was pretty vague what they felt their harm was. Okay. Now, why ha that has any application to today's discussion um, may be obvious in the sense that every, well, not every, but a lot of data breach, consumer data breach claims basically say, oh my God, people stole my identity, stole my personally identifiable information. They're going to use my identity to somehow harm me, to open up credit cards, but it hasn't necessarily happened yet. Yeah, that's exactly correct. And that's one of the issues that courts struggle with is they say, okay, they stole your identity 
but what do you want in return? What value can we ascribe to this? Or what is your harm? Um, is it just that you are afraid that someday someone may make a fraudulent transaction? Or that someone may someday commit identity theft using your identity? Well, in that case, that's not a whole lot different than Amnesty's argument in Clapper. And so under the same ruling precedent of Clapper, they say this is too speculative. You don't have standing. Well, and it's interesting, and I think we've talked about this before, you're a little bit between a rock and a hard place because if you have to wait till you're actually harmed, that can come two, three years hence. Um, but the more attenuated in time your injury is from the actual data breach, the less certain we are that the harm you suffered is as a result of that data breach because ultimately you have to prove the, prove the cause and effect. And if you can't do that, then maybe you have quote unquote standing, but you actually can't prove your claim. So plaintiffs are a little bit out of luck. So how have courts, you know, in fact, utilize Clapper in data breach? Well, it's interesting because um, some courts, uh, I would say a majority of courts and especially class action data breaches, have used Clapper to foreclose standing upon plaintiffs, um, which is to say they've kicked the plaintiffs out of court they said, you do not have harm unless you can demonstrate some sort of fraudulent charge or some sort of um, thing that has happened to you to indicate that this has harmed you in some way. Someone opening up a, a fraudulent account, something under your PII, your personally identifiable information, something along those lines. But what's interesting is not every circuit has followed Clapper. So if you were to look at, say, the Ninth Circuit, um, in the Ninth Circuit, there's a decision, Krotner v. Starbucks, and the Ninth Circuit essentially looked at Clapper and said, you know, since then has said, well, Clapper didn't change the law in standing, we're going with Krotner. And what Krotner held was that the plaintiff's fear of harm and their anxiety from this theft of their personally identifiable information was sufficient to confer standing. So the Ninth Circuit has a slightly different rule than, say, the Third Circuit. But how did they, how did they deal with Clapper? Well, again, what the Ninth Circuit since Clapper, because Krotner predated Clapper, oh, okay. but since, um, since Clapper, the district courts in the Ninth Circuit have said, well, Clapper didn't change the law in standing, and we have Krotner. So <laughs> we're going to look to Krotner, and while Clapper just emphasized this point, it's not a new analysis. I mean, right. what Clapper did is it just emphasized that this particular set of facts, it was too attenuated. Um, but you still needed to get to substantial risk of harm prior to Clapper. Okay, right. No, no, no. That's absolutely right. I mean, there's no, there's, Clapper didn't enunciate a new rule of standing. It just sort of applied it to a set of facts. So it sounds like the district courts in the Ninth Circuit are basically saying our facts are different and somewhat maybe less attenuated. And therefore, you know, there's, there's a risk of harm. Again, there's a, there's a, you know, poetic irony here, if you will, in that the greatest harm that a lot of people suffer, they actually don't suffer that harm anymore because a lot of the financial services companies are, are you know, um, poning up the money to basically make them whole. So by the time that somebody opens up or makes fraudulent charges, they're made whole. So they actually haven't suffered at least any monetary harm. But they have obviously suffered the time and expense and an effort in trying to clear their name, you know, in, you know, get all these charges off their credit cards and all these charges off their credit scores and stuff like that. And some courts, like the Seventh Circuit, have said, well, that that could confer standing because that's real injury, right? Yeah, I think that that's exactly correct. I mean, if you're able to show the time you took and you can attach some sort of value to that, 
um, then you are able to meet, you know, again, under the Seventh Circuit especially, you're able to meet the requirement for injury in fact and standing, um, which get, does not get to the merits. It doesn't get to, you know, proximate cause of that injury, right. which is another issue. But at least you can go to court and plead that this, we believe this caused this. Right. Now, the, the, the interesting thing is there, there's a multi, in class actions, there's a multi-step approach, right? So first, they've got to prove that they've got, you know, the class reps have standing to bring a claim. Once you, once you overcome that hurdle, then they've got to prove predominance that that kind of injury predominates over the entire class. Again, that may or may not be such an easy thing. That hasn't been tested all that much, partly because they haven't overcome the first hurdle in many of these cases. And then if they get certified, then they've got to actually, okay, how are you going to prove what your damages really are? Which has not at all been tested because... No one's, no one's ever gotten there um, that far and would be fascinating. There is, though, right, this, this case, it's settled, um, that we saw today, the settlement agreement of a few years ago in AvMed, right, um, which seems a little interesting because, you know, in Neiman Marcus in the Seventh Circuit case, they did not, um, they didn't give much credence to the claim that, well, I paid more for the clothes I bought or for any of the items I bought at Neiman Marcus because of um, the more vigilant security I thought you had, and obviously you didn't have, so that premium you need to refund to me. And the Seventh Circuit said, no, no, there's, that's not. But it seems some cases, or at least some settlements, have provided that, right? Yeah, I mean, it does appear as if, again, your, um, your savvy plaintiffs are out there trying to find ways to quantify this. And I think that that's probably what AVMED stands for, is that there are possibly ways that a plaintiff could quantify this that a district court may buy. Right. I mean, it's a settlement agreement, so we can't, there's no precedence, but obviously, you know, uh, both sides thought at least there was enough of a risk, um, or at least the litigation costs were enough to continue, um, that it was worth that settlement. But um, it is fascinating how anybody would prove what the premium is for the security that the consumer thought he or she was buying. Nevertheless, if if it's right and there's any evidence of it, that certainly would confer standing, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it would. I mean, especially, and it's again, one of those things where if that ever does make it through to the, you know, to the merits, those sorts of decisions, it'll be extremely interesting because that would be something that obviously, again, after there was a data breach, it would give you a, uh, a uh, objective factor to look to. Right. And, and you could calculate damages, you could calculate settlements. It would add a lot of certainty. Right. Now, not all, I mean, a lot of these cases come in the context of retail just because they're, they're easy targets. More and more they're coming in in healthcare, but they've come in other industries as well. And at least the Sixth Circuit seems to be grappling with um, sort of issues of standing in a non-retail, right? Yeah, absolutely. The Sixth Circuit actually heard oral arguments recently on a non-retail and non-financial data breach case. And it was interesting because in the oral arguments, one of the questions that the Sixth Circuit was posing was whether or not the loss of privacy itself, that is, whether or not you have an inherent value, an inherent sort of right to your privacy, whether or not the intrusion into that right or that theft um, was sufficient to confer standing for the purposes of Article 3, which again, traditionally, Article 3 standing threshold is an extremely low threshold. So what they were making the point that this may be a scintilla of value, 
but it's a value that today may or may not be recognized. Right, right. Well, I mean, we know long ago the right of privacy was a very um, heatedly debated issue. You know, when many states had, you know, there was no con federal constitutional right to privacy. A lot of states enacted statutes and right to privacy. But how do you value that right to privacy in terms of as an injury? I mean, all you lawyers out there, isn't that contract law? <laughs> I think it's also how do you redress it? So they yeah. took your identity. I can't get it back. They can't give you your PII back and just forget everything. I mean, this isn't eternal sunshine of a spotless mind. There's no mind eraser here. So, you know, it's also a difficult, you, you know, yes, your privacy may have been violated, but it's a little unclear how they would how they would redress that. Again, short of possibly injunctive relief and, and maybe, again, some monetary damages, a slap on the wrist just for doing a bad job. But that's down the road. Right. Well, I mean, you know, one way to, to cure all that is to, um, if states enact statutes that give statutory damages. Yes, absolutely. Like or a private right of action with statutory damages, which exactly. would change the game entirely. Right. And, you know, confer standing, class actions, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, the whole the whole shebang. Um, it, it'd be interesting from an economic standpoint. I mean, I would argue is how much would a person pay to not have his privacy so vulnerable, and that would be kind of the amount of injury the person suffered. That may be a little bit too conceptual and speculative for most judges, and frankly, I don't know how you would you know, deal with predominance, whether that kind of injury would predominate over the entire class. But you know, the, the other irony, and I think it was mentioned in the, in the Sixth Circuit case, is you know, we say it's speculative, but somebody hacked and stole the identity and you know there yes there are people who steal it just for the heck of it and just for the maliciousness of it and for the for the gamesmanship of it but there is an intuition that when somebody steals something they steal it because they want to use it somehow you know i don't think somebody breaks into my car to you know steal my uh, whatever my ipod or um, mp3 player just because he wants to steal it he's going to use it or sell it or somehow you know, so there, there is an intuition that they're going to use it somehow. Yeah, and I think the difficulty there is it can be very unclear how they're going to use it. I know, I believe in Neiman Marcus, they stated that. They said these were sophisticated criminal actors and that this was stolen for criminal purposes. And that's clear. And clearly an unauthorized intrusion into a network is a crime. So they're criminal actors. They're committing a crime. So clearly they have criminal purpose. So I think that there's certainly an argument to be made there. What's less clear is obviously every data breach does not result in a fraudulent transaction or even your identity being posted online. Um, what they do with that data or what they're using it for runs the gamut from holding on to it to selling it on forums to who knows, really. Um, and that's the problem is that it's who knows. It becomes speculative. Right. And the other thing I think uh, that was involved in the Sixth Circuit case that, you know, it seems somewhat um, of, a, of a twist is they, they, they seem to find somewhat persuasive the fact that breach notification letters were sent. Yeah, they made that point in oral arguments. And again, since it's not a decision, it's hard to tell where they were going with it. But they, they said, you know, they were making the argument that the, uh, that the corporation said, you know, there's no substantial risk. This is too speculative and citing to Clapper. And they said, well, you sent out these notification letters that said monitor your credit. So yeah. how can you say that there's not a substantial risk of harm 
when you were warning your customers to stay vigilant right after you know right after this breach took place and the corporation made a decent point that these are statutorily required <laughs> letters um, now admittedly the wording in them isn't necessarily statutorily required they require you to notify customers not necessarily warn them but that's neither here nor there the the point is that these letters are sent out and the, the corporation just made the argument that they were just being corporate good citizens they right. just you know they wanted to you know they want their customers just to be aware that this is something that they could do to protect themselves they weren't trying to say that this would happen definitely or that you know this would this is a certainly impending harm right and it certainly doesn't make it any less speculative i mean just because you i'm asking you to be vigilant you know if there was a break-in in your neighborhood and people tell you you know just be a little extra vigilant that does not mean you will be broken into just means keep your eyes out yeah but i think the key thing and this is kind of kind of the uh, crux of the issue is that the Sixth Circuit certainly did not read Clapper to foreclose the issue. You know, they read, when they talked about Clapper, they were distinguishing the facts. They were pro asking these rather probing questions concerning harm. So it did not appear as if the Sixth Circuit said, this is too speculative. We're relying on Clapper. We agree with this reasoning. So you don't have standing. Now, they still may find that the plaintiffs don't have standing, but it did not appear to be as open and shut as some of the decisions which have relied on Clapper. Right. You would think that if they, they thought Clapper was applicable, they would have been more probing, probing perhaps on that side. Yes. Um, the, the interesting thing is, obviously, at some point this may need or will go up to the Supreme Court and how the Supreme Court will deal with Clapper um, itself will be fascinating. Yeah, I think that that's 100% correct in the sense of you have different circuits that are beginning to either agree that Clapper forecloses standing in data breach or distinguishing Clapper as it appeared, and again, no decisions out, but as it appeared the Sixth Circuit was doing. Um, then you have the Ninth Circuit, which is relying in a Third Circuit, which rely on pre-Clapper decisions. So it may at one point, you know, when this reaches some sort of uh, head, it may become incumbent upon the Supreme Court to grant some sort of cert just to clarify what Clapper said and how it applies to these types of cases, especially given the data breaches are not going away anytime soon. This is not a problem that's going to be resolved in the near future and then the courts will no longer have to deal with this. Right. No, no, that is, it is a, it is here to stay. I mean, that, that's just a cost of doing business and there are a number of studies that, you know, you know, how much businesses you know, pay both in outright uh, costs as well as loss of goodwill um, and the like. So, um, you know, it is interesting. But the, the one, and I don't know how this will affect anything or if it will affect anything, but, you know, we've talked about before and everybody knows, you know, whether Congress has been discussing kind of a federal, you know, data breach, data notification regime. You know, we have essentially 40 some odd, you know, different notification regimes and they're just they're all different they're all you know um, you, you got it, it just there's transaction costs and especially if your data breach you know spans the country so the FTC and others have have been lobbying Congress to have kind of a one 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 shop you know one-stop shopping where you know what your obligations are and you and you just do it if they ever get their act together and enact that legislation I don't, I don't know if it'll affect standing, but it's entirely possible that they may try to affect the standing 
via legislation. Well, I think it absolutely could. I mean, if they do express preemption, they preempt every single state data breach uh, notification mm-hmm. statute and make it a pretty overarching, comprehensive piece of legislation. Now, there are other issues. HIPAA has privacy pre- uh, provisions. Gramm-Leach-Bailey has privacy provisions. But if they were to make one of these, there's a there's a the big disagreement is whether or not it would only be the attorney generals or attorneys general. Um, who would be able to enforce it or whether or not it would include a private right of action in some sort of federal legislation. You know, I, 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 you know again, this is Jay Levine talking um, and take that for what you want, but I, I can't believe they will, they will write out a private right of action. I, I just, you know, I know um, it, it's just, it's, it means too much to too many people. Frankly, the plaintiff's bar is, is pretty, the lobbying is pretty intense. Um, I just don't see that happening at the same time. You know, do they really want to try to um, provide, per, you know, any any remedies such that they're standing automatically? I, you got you get a lot of kind of constitutional issues, and frankly, a lot also depends on you know who's controlling Congress and whether they want an overarching federal regime or they want to leave it to the states to to remedy, you know, for what they want. I mean, uh, you know, the, we we are in a federal republic, and and the whole point is. If each state has their own unique interests, I'm not sure what those might be, but if they do, then we leave it to the states. Yeah, but it's been interesting. I mean, the states have had data breach statutes in place for years now, and like you said, we're up to 47 of them. It, it seems as though the test bed of democracy has spoken, and there are certain overarching principles you could take from those for federal legislation. But I agree with you, it remains to be seen whether or not an administration will have the have the wherewithal and the drive to to accomplish that and whether or not Congress will let them so yeah I mean let's put it this way the impetus to have an overarching regime has been there for the past decade and it hasn't happened yet now we all know how gridlocked Washington has been so um, you know I live there so um, you know maybe that that's part of it and we'll see if it's remedied in the next administration or not but it doesn't seem that anybody is necessarily rushing to um, you know to get this passed first thing yeah and I mean we've gone through both a Republican and Democratic administration so it's also not a party specific or party centric issue it seems as though both parties want to do something about it right it's just coming to consensus as to what that thing should be right and in, and it's and it's a popular issue for both I mean there, there really shouldn't be a whole lot of political divide here necessarily uh, and part of the issue is how much jurisdiction do you want to confer in the FTC to be kind of the uber agency um, to regulate everything. I mean, they've kind of moved into that role. They've asserted both their deception and their unfairness um, authority over things. Um, and they do recognize that obviously HMS and, and the like have to regulate HIPAA and all that. Um, and, you know, but nevertheless, they they are on on top of it, and you know, in some respects, they they kind of have the uh, the the skill set to enforce it. I mean, it is consumer protection. Yeah, yeah, it is. And uh, again, I was just I know I was talking with you earlier. I was just at the ABA Spring Antitrust, and they have they're hard charging when it comes to privacy and data security at the FTC. They they see this as part of their mandate, and they are going to move with it going forward. So. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, they, they just announced they're going to have their second privacy con. Um, so there's an, another conference devoted to it um, in Chicago in June, which we may go to. There's a uh, security conference, you know, data breach security conference um, with some of the thought leaders um, at Northwestern. So, I mean, they really are 
charging ahead both on the legal enforcement side as well as kind of the thought leadership um, side. So it, it will be interesting and, and maybe they'll have the jurisdiction whether they've been given it or not um, statutorily. But how, how Congress is going to allow and help plaintiffs continue to press their claims um, is something to be seen. Yeah, it really does. And how other agencies follow the FTC or break from the FTC, because obviously, as you mentioned, um, HHS and uh, FCC all have uh, certain areas of privacy that they oversee. Yeah, so. absolutely. So, you know, stay tuned. Um, we will be doing um, uh, coming out with some uh, articles and, and further podcasts on some of the uh, uh, seminars that, that went on last week at the ABA Antitrust Spring Meeting, which focused a lot on the consumer protection, as Ryan mentioned. And we were fortunate to have Ryan and others attend some of these. And uh, uh, he'll let you know exactly what went on and what you can expect. And, um, you know, as always, we need to stay tuned and stay vigilant, right? Yep, that's exactly right, Jay. Okay, well, thank you for joining us. Uh, this has been Jay Levine, uh, your host of Antitrust Law Source with Ryan Graham. You can uh, always reach me by email at Levine, the letter J, L-E-V-I-N-E, at porterite.com. If you prefer Twitter, I'm at J-A-Y-L-L-E-V-I-N-E. I'm also on LinkedIn. And Ryan, how do we get a hold of you? You can reach me at R-G-R-A-H-A-M at porterright.com. And I will just uh, let everybody notice that the old man in the room has a Twitter account, and yet the young man in the room does not. No Twitter, no Facebook, no LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, just saying. Thank you, folks. It has been a pleasure. Take care. Porter Wright Morrison Arthur LLP offers this content for informational purposes only as a service for our clients and friends. This content is not intended as legal advice for any purpose and you should not consider it as such. All rights reserved.